If you would please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 127. The book of Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. There are 150 of them, so obviously 127 is going to be on the, on the right end of that. In, your, in the Bibles that are in your pews, it's on page 613, 613. The superscription on top reads, A Song of Ascents of Solomon. This song is written by Solomon. I would like to apologize in advance if you hear me say David in the sermon. It's become second nature. But this one's by Solomon. Unless the Lord, unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. As I was preparing the sermon this week, uh, after it went to print in the bulletin, so, so this is not reflected in the bulletin, but this is going to be part one of a two-part sermon on Psalm 127. And I simply ask for your patience in that regard, because... Um, when you've got a new dad preaching on children or a heritage from the Lord, that's going to be at least two sermons, okay? So I'm sorry, but not sorry. And so as we begin to navigate this together, we are, of course, still in the midst of this series, The Songs of Zion. Uh, now, where we are in it, I, ha- I have to admit, at this point, um, I, I, even myself, am a bit mixed up, and we might be hitting a bit of a grab bag from here on out. So the fact that, that I'm preaching 127 this morning, I might go in reverse, preach an earlier one uh, a few Sundays from now, uh, but, but it, it's always with purpose. It's always that there are uh, a handful of particular psalms that I've selected out of the Psalter for this series because I think they'll be of particular help to us and, our, and to our body. And so, uh, and so if I can, direct your attention to the text. We will begin at the best place to start, right? Verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Those who build it work in vain. The psalm begins with a rather straightforward principle where God Almighty is pictured as a divine architect. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who, labor, those who build it labor in vain. So I'm going to start with what is the most fundamental principle of this sermon and the next one. And so if you, if you make sure you've got this principle fixed in your mind, we're going to keep coming back to it because it is the, it's the interpretive lens through which you need to view the rest of the psalm. And so without it, the rest of the sermon won't make sense. It begins here because this is the foundation, which is fitting enough for an architectural metaphor. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So here's the principle, as I'm going to set, set it forward for you in, in two statements, right? Can we go there next? There we go. If God blesses the plans, nothing can stop them. If God does not bless the plans, nothing can sustain them. 
And I'm using plans rather broadly, okay? If God blesses the plans, nothing can stop them. If God does not bless the plans, nothing can sustain them. If the Lord builds the house, then it's blessed. Thanks be to God. If the Lord's not the one doing the building, all the labors are in vain. So if God's building, it will be built. If not, it will not be built. And it doesn't matter how effective the plans are. If God, to, to put it another way, uh, because it then talks about unless the Lord watches over the city. So you have two pictures here. One is the building of a house and the other is watchmen on the wall of a city. And so if God is protecting the city, to stick with the picture, nothing can defeat it. If God is not protecting the city, it does not matter how thick the gates are, how, how big the, the Helm's Deep style walls are, if God is not the one protecting the city, it doesn't matter how many guards are on the wall or how many swords you have. I think there's also a sense in which we can extend this out to the different spheres of life. So if, if God is not protecting a church body, what hope do we have? If God is not protecting a nation, it doesn't matter how many missiles we've got. If God is not protecting a city, it doesn't matter how good their political leadership is. Now, I'm not saying that in that context, this context of absence of protection, nothing good or virtuous can ever happen. But I'm saying that ultimately the purpose and plan will fail. With the blessing of God, however, triumph is secured no matter how improbable. With the blessing of God, defeat is inevitable. Sorry, without the blessing of God, defeat is inevitable, no matter how secure things look. Now, if that's the world you live in, and if that's the God you trust, this psalm invites you to rest and to know, this is the second point. So the first point is the law of the builder, which is right here. And it's the foundation for the whole deal. The second point is the worthlessness of anxiety. Okay? So remember the principle here. God blesses, nothing stops it. If God doesn't, nothing can sustain it. And we're going to go more in this Sunday and a lot more next Sunday about how that works out. Verse 2 applies this reality to the foolishness of anxiety. Listen. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Now, who's the you here? Well, from the context, whoever's building the, uh, whoever's the, the laborers building the city, the watchmen on the wall, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Okay. Three things I want to draw out of that verse that are written up there for you. First, the vanity or foolishness of obsessive overwork, Right? This, this idea of burning the candle at, at, at both ends, uh, 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 going, it's, instead of early to bed and early to rise, it's, it's late to bed and early to rise. Number two, anxiety is junk food. And number three, sleep is God's gift. That's all, that's all in verse two there. So let's start with the first one. Just for, this is just for verse two, not for the whole rest of the sermon. The vanity or foolishness of obsessive overwork. First, I want to make something clear, and that is that work is good. Work is a good gift of God. Work is one of the three creation ordinances that God hardwired into His good world at creation. Three creation ordinances. Everybody should know those. They are Sabbath rest, right? After the seventh day, God rested. 
They are marriage. Right? He put a man and a woman in the garden together and work. Told him to work and keep that garden. So these three creation ordinances that God's given to us. Sabbath, rest, uh, Sabbath, rest, marriage, and work. Or if you like, work, worship, and wedlock. Isn't that nice? All right? No, it's not? Okay, all right. So, so work is good. That's the point so far. Work is good. We might often be tempted to think work is part of the curse of the fall, but that's not true. Work that is full of misery and toil, that's part of the curse. Work that feels like going to war and it tears up our body and it troubles our soul continually, that's the curse. But work itself is good. We were made to work. Did I, am I still, can you still hear me? Okay, sorry. We were made to work and to delight in good work. But the psalmist, what, what, what Solomon is singing about here in verse 2, is work that is devoid of rest, right? You see that, that he is, to use the old expression, burning the candle at both ends. He is late to bed. He is early to rise. If you've done that, you know it can have a significant impact on your body, even on your appetite. People who consistently cheat themselves out of healthy sleeping patterns tend to find their anxiety shoots up. And their appetite either weakens or they tend to consume excessive amounts of uh, junk and stressy. Now don't miss the connection here between anxiety and, and eating. Eating the bread of anxious toil. That's verse 2. It's not the point of the psalm. It's not the point of the whole picture. But I just want to note it in passing that if you go to a doctor, for example, to seek treatment for, say, anxiety or depression, any good doctor worth his salt is going to probably start with three, uh, maybe more than three, but at least three questions. Are you sleeping enough? Are you sleeping in a consistent pattern? That is, about the same time every night you're going to bed, about the same time in the morning you're waking up. We call that circadian rhythm. And then number three, what's your diet like? Three, three, and I'm not saying all depression and anxiety is from those three things. I'm saying a whole, whole lot of it is. So not always, but fairly often, a deeply anxious or stressed out or depressed person has never been asked those three questions by somebody. He calls anxious toil bread, eating the bread of anxious toil. What does that mean? Well, if you are frequently made anxious, there's a sense in which if you can, if you can, if we can picture a person who's eating anxiety like food, it's important we, we talk about this and picture this and, and get inside this metaphor because anxiety has, I think, become a baseline normal for a lot of people in our society. Here's what I mean. When is the last time you heard someone say, uh, you know, anxiety is just not really a problem for me? Right? When's the last time you heard somebody say that? There are maybe a few of you, and God bless you. Most of us assume, however, that anxiety is just this ever-present, constant, suffocating reality, and that's just how humans have always lived. I don't know about that. It's how most Americans live, but it's by no means, I'm not ready to say it's how most people live, but I am getting away from the question, why the bread of anxious toil? 
Well, if you're frequently worried or anxious, as I said, it becomes as familiar as food to you. Here's what I mean. Worry and anxiety, think of them this way. Worry and anxiety are liars. Okay? They're liars. They lie to you. This is the lie. Ready? They say, life operates like a fear-based investment bank. If you've been watching the news, you know invest, some banks are in trouble these days. Life, but fear and anxiety says life operates like a worry-based investment bank. And so when something major is going on in your life, what you must do if you want it to go well is to worry about it. So, so, so what do you have on your plate? Okay? Are, your, I mean, are your kids growing up too fast? Are they going away to college soon? Are your parents getting older? Are you getting older? Is the budget looking tighter and tighter? Are the job prospects looking slimmer? Are, is, is there an illness that's confronting you? Whatever it is, okay, here, here comes the lie. You know what you got to do about that? You got to worry about it. Not just like you have that option. You might, if you're bored on a, on a Monday afternoon, worry about it. But you must be worried, be afraid, fret. And every time you worry, you're making a little investment into the bank. And if you worry enough and if you stress hard enough and make it obvious that you care enough, if you're terrified enough and frantic enough and prove to everyone how much this really matters then the worry bank will pay out with interest and everything will be fine. I, I think subconsciously this is the way we think about worry sometimes. Some, I, I, I don't want to put everybody into this basket, but I think probably more than a few of you think this way. It's like something big's coming, okay, I know what I have to do. I have to worry about it because my past has told me that when I worry about stuff, it turns out okay. That's not the kindness of my God. That's me putting deposits in the worry bank. And so what's that invitation? Make sure you eat this bread of anxious toil every day. Make sure it keeps you up almost every night. Otherwise, things are not going to go well for you. That's the lie. And to that lie, Solomon says, stop being so stupid. <laughs> Don't you know that you have a God in heaven? Don't you know that he's the one building this house with his infinite resources and he needs nothing from your worry investment bank. The Lord is the one building the house. Okay? And so, 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 so you know, is it really that simple that like God exists and that's sort of the answer? Well, look, yes, because what, is this, what does the text say? If you go back to it. It is in vain that you rise up early, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. When fear and anxiety are ruling your life, you do not believe you are loved by God. He gives to his beloved, don't miss that, he gives to his beloved sleep. If you're, if you're swimming in fear and anxiety, at least at some level, you believe that you are abandoned or despised by God. That he enjoys ruining your life. So you have to work extra hard because not only is the work in a cursed wor world toilsome, but the God of your cursed world is a monster. And that will keep you up at night. But he gives to his beloved sleep. Do you, do you hear how amazing that is? He, <laughs> he gives to his beloved sleep. 
I mean, that's a gift, not without its sort of humiliating factor, right? I mean, is there anything more like vulnerable and defenseless than sleeping for numerous hours at a time, which we all have to do, but sometimes we're kept from doing, my precious little baby girl. It is in vain, it is in vain, let me put it this way, it is in vain that you try to turn every possible hour you have into money. Money is not what God gave to man on the seventh day. Rest is. And a lot of overwork and anxiety where they happen have been justified as, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm providing for my family. And that's good. That's a good thing. But sometimes that phrase can be spoken when in actuality what's going on is you, you are you are working as though you live in a world made by a God who hates you. And so you will work obsessively. You'll skip church. You'll work on Sundays. You'll, you'll be far from God's people. You won't care about all of those things going on because who wants to worship a God who hates them? And there are unfortunately countless stories of men and women who have overworked themselves constantly feasting on anxious toil, and they do make money. They sustain the budget and they destroy their family because, because they're the ones trying to build their house, verse one. I told you I was gonna come back to it. Right? They think they're the builder. Now, with that information, okay, if, if you think of house in the sense of household, right, can you see why verse three, why, why children comes next? Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. That's as far as we're going to go this Sunday. We'll do, we'll, we'll do kind of the whole psalm, but especially verses 4 and 5 next Sunday. So, but do you see the connection? Because at, at first I admit I didn't, right? Like, okay, Lord builds the house. Don't be anxious. Kids. Okay. Uh, it's not obvious to me how you got there. I'm trying to show you the connection, right? If you're the one trying to build your house, and if you're the one constantly eating anxious toil, guess who's really going to lose? God is the one who builds the house. So why are you terrified and sleepless and anxious? In part, perhaps, because you value what the world values. That kind of idolatry, obsessed with the world's obsessions, worshiping at the altars of mammon. So verse 3 starts with, Behold. Have a look at this. Behold. Behold the things that God values. Behold what God calls valuable and priceless. Little children. What? I'll have you know that children are expensive. What do you mean? Children are expensive though, right? That's what we're all taught. That's what we're all taught all the time. You know, kids, that's the thing about kids. That's the thing about kids. That's the thing about kids is that they're really expensive. What a damnable lie. Just a damnable way to, I'm not, I'm not swearing, I'm actually saying it's a hellish way to think about children. I'm not saying that you're not going to incur expenses if you have children, duh. But I'm saying thinking of children in the, like that's what you are. You are a little resource sucker, okay? That's, that, you know, what a horrific way to think of, think of children, right? Like biblically speaking, children are the resource, Okay? 
It's, it's, it's this resource that's going to build and produce and be fruitful in the future. So that, that is a resource. That's not a resource destroyer. So it's a decidedly evil way to think. Vodi Balkum has observed that in third world countries, they talk about how many children they can have. In first world countries like ours, we talk about how many we can afford. Because we see all of life as a matter of low risk consumption and pleasure. So we see anything that costs money as a threat to that pleasure. But what if, I ask you, church, what if God's answer to the American diet of anxious toil is a biblical understanding of the family? What if that's part of how God means to answer our anxious toil? I didn't say, by the way, I didn't say a traditional understanding of the family. I said a biblical understanding of the family. There's a difference between the traditional family and the biblical family. They might look pretty similar from a distance. Like from a distance, you're like, oh, hey, wife, husbands, kids, dog, rabbit, <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, okay, it looks the same, right? These two, these two things look exactly the same, but they're actually quite different. There are four terms used to describe children in the family in this psalm. Why don't we look at them real quick? Again, two of them we're going to talk about this morning. Two more we're going to get to next Sunday. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows, I don't think I have this one up there, sorry. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So, first thing, verse 3, heritage. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Second thing, a reward. Second part of verse 3, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Third thing, children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior next Sunday. And then the fourth thing, he shall not be put to shame. So whatever, whatever children are, it's the opposite of shame, which I'm excited to get to this next Sunday, but opposite of shame, I would say, is pride. Not, not sinful pride, but think more. This is so convenient in English. Pride is in a pride of lions, right? When he's with his sons, talking with his enemies at the gate, the opposite of, sh of shame is this, is this strong, familial, bonded pride together. So this Sunday, I want to talk to you about the idea of heritage and reward, and the next Sunday, arrows and a pride. So the fir first two terms are related to wealth, right? Heritage and reward. The word translated heritage is the Hebrew word for inheritance or family wealth, family resources. And, and the next word, reward, again, both terms operate kind of under the heading of what we tend to assume is, is like material blessing. Again, I hope you see the irony that we tend to be terrified of children as costly and the Bible uses two terms that basically mean money, <laughs> So notice, first of all, what Solomon's trying to show us in this song. What he wants us to sing about is that children are a blessing and a gift, that they're, that they're valuable, right? That they're valuable. We are tempted to think that we want to acquire, you know, wealth, comfort, success, status, maybe children, maybe, you know, all right. But the biblical perspective is that that's, that's the wealth, that's the heritage and the reward. Now, that's a really dangerous idea, isn't it? Right? If that gets preached, young men and women might do crazy things like get married, have kids, raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They won't have time to agonize over finding themselves for 10 years while cultivating loneliness and confusion about identity and desperation for significance, but now I'm meddling. Another danger is that they might start to believe the work of building 
godly households, building the house, if you will, is all dependent on them. That's a real danger. Go back to verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, it would be really easy to take a verse like that and arrive rather conveniently at a structure of like works righteousness. And this is especially true, I think, with children. You can, you can fall into a trap of thinking that, that your, your, your children's faith is just the sheer result of your like blood-earnest hard work. Okay? Now, I'm going to show you why that's a temptation for particularly parents to think because it is true that our faith works itself out in good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 is instructive here. If we can go there now, thank you. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not saved by good works, but saved for them. Saved to do them, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Okay? So our good works are not the foundation on which our godliness grows. No. Good works flow out of our faith. They are not substituted for our faith. This was pictured very well last Sunday when little Abigail was baptized right here. What's happening there? We're asking God to be God to her just as He's God to us, trusting in His promises for a future profession of faith. And then, yeah, good works that flow from that profession, from that faith. But the vows begin, the baptismal vows that parents take, begin with trust in Jesus. So you see, what this psalm means to guard your heart and my heart from, whether or not you're a parent, by the way, is uh, not, not, from, not from planning as such. It's not calling you not to care about plans. It's good to plan to envision a future, to set goals and to work toward them, to achieve them, with verse 1 echoing in your ears, right? If the Lord doesn't build this house, those who labor build it in vain. Right now, uh, Steve Mathis has been teaching us on Wednesday nights through some of the parables of Jesus. It's been a really edifying time. He most recently taught on the parable of the rich fool who has this abundant harvest, right? And then he, then he says, what shall I do now with, with all of this material wealth, Right? I'm going to tear down my barns and build even bigger barns, which I'd never noticed before. Like, why, why wouldn't you just add on? Why, why do you have to, to rip out and tear down and, and build new ones? Uh, translation, rather than, rather than with gratitude build on what God has given me, I'm going to carelessly wreck it for something new and better and all for me and my stuff. And what's he told, right? You fool. Today your soul is required of you. And then basically, then who's going to get all your wealth? What I think we can take from that, that last portion of the psalm, is that this was all for him. You couldn't even call it an inheritance because the question's asked, who's going to have it then? We don't know. It was all about you. Now it's possible that as... I've been walking you through this text this morning. You might be thinking like, oh, this sermon is just for parents then. Sermon's only for parents. I'm not a parent. Guess I shouldn't have showed up for church today. And thanks for letting me know about next Sunday, Pastor Brian. I'll just go ahead and sleep in. <laughs> and to you, I would simply say, you should probably grow up a little bit. <laughs> Isn't that great? I put words in your mouth and then tell you to grow up. What I mean is that, I mean, 
if you look at the, see those cards in the pews that say children at grace? I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to brag, but like I wanted, I wanted to put those in the pew long, long before I was married, y'all. <laughs> long before your pastor was married, we put those in the pew. The, the point was that in a world that sees children as a lot of times as an annoyance, as a burden, as a threat to consumption, a threat to vacations, a threat to travel and freedom. Christians, on the other hand, use words like heritage and reward. We also use words like arrows. That's next Sunday. My point today is that it's a lie to suppose, listen, it's, it's a lie for you to suppose that the building of, let's say, of the house of God and of strong and faithful households, even within this congregation, is a work given only to married people. So like those of you who aren't married, but, but you want to be, let's say, you should be looking for ways to be, encouraged, be an encouragement and be a help to families and while you prepare for one yourself. If you want to be your husband or wife someday, let me ask you, how are you preparing for that? Are you learning now? Are you reading, growing now? Are you seeking to learn from godly married people around you? There's plenty of them in our body. Are you keeping yourself Say healthy and strong and sharp so you'll be able to support a family and participate in one in the future. Are you crucifying your immaturity and your besetting sins now rather than making excuses for them? Well, what, what, if, I am, what if I am elderly and advanced in years and, and my, my kids have, have moved out and so on? Well, I have great news for you. There are numerous ways you can support and bless families and younger generations in our body. I know sometimes the mentality that pervades is like, I did my time, I had my kids, I taught my kids, I took care of my kids, I've, I've put in my hours. Honestly, if that's your attitude, please just don't say it around me unless you want to put me in the hospital. This is a capitulation, I think, to our culture's view of children. I did my time with those burdensome, noisy little piles of affliction and misery, and I want nothing to do with them. I've served my years in the prison block, and I'm not going back. <laughs> you probably need to repent. There's probably some repentance that needs to happen there. Or maybe it is for you, maybe it is for you that you can't have kids right now. I'm talking to married people who are unable to have children. You want to, but you can't. So, so you know better than anyone that sustained long-term childlessness is not some kind of perpetual vacation. It's a hard and bitter affliction. There is a spectacular moment in the book of Isaiah where, oddly enough, God addresses specific promises to eunuchs that is, those who are unable to have kids, because, well, let's just say they lack the ability. Which is not the same as barrenness or childlessness, I, I know. So, so, so hang with me for a second. I know those are not the same. But, but it's in the same neighborhood, okay? Isaiah 56, verses 4 and 5. Wait till you see this. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs. I would say just, just read it to the childless. 
who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. I note as an aside that in the midst of our cultural chaos, there there are young men and women who believing themselves to be something other than what God made them to be are choosing to engage in surgical procedures that result in their sterility. Someday, I reckon, maybe, maybe sooner than we think, they're going to manifest anger at being lied to. And if they come to the church saying, what do I do now? Isaiah 56, 4 and 5. Here's the hope that we're going to give to you. Here's the hope that's going to stabilize and steady you. And we're not going to greet you with we told you so. We're going to greet you with God loves you and he has a place for you at this table and in this body. This passage is even more remarkable when you realize that, you know the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8, right? He's, he's sitting in the chariot reading Isaiah 53, 53, when Philip found him. Philip preaches to him, sees him saved and converted and baptizes him. So the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. I like to imagine that one of the first things that he did as a Christian is read the next three chapters in the scroll. And find there that God had set a place for him at the table the whole time. The whole time. Many are the mothers and fathers in God's house who have been unable to be mothers and fathers to children of their own flesh. This is, of course, at at the same time, this is why we care about adoption and foster care and things like that. It's why we're involved in these things because in the light of being adopted into God's family, the answer is like, why wouldn't we be? Now listen, just as an aside, I'm not saying that if, you know, if this is you that I've been talking to for the last few minutes, I'm not saying give up hope if you're still waiting on children the Lord hasn't given them. Don't give up hope. God has a history of surprising his people. But while you wait, don't exempt yourself from the blessing from, from blessing the families and the little ones that God has placed around you right now. So trust in the Lord. That's actually the whole point of the sermon. Trust in the Lord. <laughs> Unless the Lord builds, it is worthless. Okay. Unless the Lord builds up. Unless the Lord builds Grace Presbyterian Church, beloved. All the catechisms and psalm singing and fellowship meetings and family picnics and folk dances and weekly communion and yes, even the sermons will be worthless. It'll all be worthless. And so, what do we do? We, we come to the God who means to bless us. We come once again to Jesus Christ. And where there has been sin, we begin with repentance. We begin by naming the sin, confessing the sin, and repenting. Where there's been fear and anxious toil, we repent. Some of you need to obey God by sleeping just a little bit more rather than ruining yourself in the name of earthly security. Some of you need to seek the Lord in prayer and then seek wise counsel on what it looks like in God's kingdom to be a 
mom or a dad, to be a husband or a wife, to be a son or a daughter, or a single person, or a widow or widower, right now, in this time, in this congregation. So for some of you, there's repentance that needs to happen there. You're like, well, I'm already fulfilling the office of mom, dad, or husband or wife, but not according to what God has said. And so our God is not a distant God. He is a father who makes rebels into sons. He makes eunuchs into dads. He makes sons into arrows. That's next week. He does this because Jesus Christ, our Lord, has taken the arrows of sin and death and judgment into himself. He's taken all of your sin and all of your failure and all of your cowardice and all of your sleepless, toilsome anxiety on himself. And he's bled and died and rose again. And he left all your filth in the grave. And it's not going to rise up again. He's building a new kingdom out of every family and every nation on earth. And we've not been called to fear or to anxiety or to pessimistic misery. I mean, is not our God building? Is not our God, is not the divine architect at work building his kingdom. When we pray, let your kingdom come and let your will be done, are we just wasting words? Is our God not coming to us with blessing? If not, let us repent and plead for it. And if he is, if he is, of whom shall we be afraid? Of whom shall we be afraid? If the Lord builds the house, it can't be torn down, it can't be shaken even if the whole rest of the neighborhood is crashing down. If the Lord builds the house, there we will dwell forever. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so our Father, as we learn these things together, and as we learn to love them together, those are two different things, as we learn these things together and as we learn to love them together, we ask for your help. I pray especially, I pray especially for parents in this room. And, and all of us besides, that you would grant us to confess what you call good, good, what you call reward, reward, what you call heritage, heritage, and what you call anxious toil, that we would call that worthless, vain. And so we ask, Lord, that you would put your words on our lips, that they would be our words, that you would put your songs on our lips, that they would be our songs we would rejoice in all that our God has said. In Jesus' name, amen.